Uh, so our reading today begins and ends in the wilderness. Well, it does if you ignore chapter and verse numbers for a minute, which is fine. They're only like 450 years old, so you can ignore them. We begin our reading today in the wilderness where John is preaching and baptizing along the banks of the Jordan River. We end with Jesus freshly baptized, being led by the Spirit further out into the wilderness to be tempted by the adversary. I'm going to pick up on that next Sunday. That's Matthew chapter 4. So I think it's worth paying attention to this. It bookends in the wilderness. Wilderness is a rather broad category, isn't it? Even the dictionary offers up a smorgasbord of meanings. The wilderness is a tract or region uncultivated and uninhabited by human beings. An empty or pathless area, a section in the garden devoted to wild growth. These are all words or descriptions for what wilderness can mean. Wilderness is also a state of mind or a way of expressing a bewildering situation. A mental wilderness, if you will. Perhaps you have known a wilderness like this. For a recent example, you know the time between Christmas and New Year's, and just a little past that, um, where you don't know what day of the week it is, and you've been surviving on a diet of cheese and chocolate and stale cookies? That's kind of like a mental wilderness. Alongside this wilderness, in this vignette, is John, the one called the Baptist. He is known in the region as an odd duck. And even if you didn't know the stories about his birth, about his aged, barren parents, his father's temporary mutism, even if you didn't know those things, one look at him would tell you all you need to know. Enough anyway to come to your own conclusions. Wearing strange clothes made of camel's hair. Uh, following that weird locust and honey uh, keto diet. Uh, unkempt hair and eyes that were always sort of uncomfortably bugged out. John, okay, that's a bit of eisegesis, but that's how I picture him. John the baptizer was often found wandering the edges of the village or right out in the wilderness, reciting his rebellious anti-empire discourse, heavily seasoned with warnings about the coming of the Messiah. Today, we might call John an activist, one who uses performative activity and rhetoric to destabilize and affect systemic change. He most definitely fits among the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, folks like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah, who all had earned a bit of a reputation as the village weirdo. So John mostly hung out in the wilderness, which suited him just fine because the village life felt like an ill-fitting suit. And you know how he feels about suits. Yet despite his attire, his demeanor, and shall we say his rustic ways, John always managed to draw a crowd. The people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, Matthew writes. And all the region along the Jordan 
and they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins, which is all well and good, until John locked eyes with a bunch of religious leaders gathering around the outskirts of the crowd. You brood of vipers, he shouts at the Pharisees and Sadducees with like spittle coming out of his mouth. I added that too. Uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. This is how you read the Bible, people. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And again, fire. This is John. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Oh, come on. Guys, there's a theme. Okay, so let's talk about all of this for a minute, right? <laughs> Before the service warns, like, I'm reading the whole chapter. I'm like, yeah, not just the Jesus baptism part. Nope, we're going to focus on John today. So first off, we need to acknowledge the bad blood between John and these religious officials. While the core of his message is right and good, the name-calling is perhaps a bit over the top. Vipers were believed to gestate inside a womb rather than eggs and would burst out when full-term, devouring the mother's body as its first meal. You're welcome. <laughs> Oh, y'all are going to want me to go on holidays again. <laughs> you brood of vipers is quite the ad hominem. And while I know whole sermons have been preached on the name calling, I'd rather actually just move on to what John is really getting at, denouncing religious nepotism. He looks out over the crowd of people who have followed him out to the river, people who have listened to his messages, people who are making genuine confessions and making genuine commitments to change their hearts and their lives, people who are seeking spiritual washing through the ritual baptizing. He looks over all of these people and his eyes land on the pious religious ones at the back, the ones who are really just there maybe to watch the spectacle, thinking that they're above such nonsense. The ones who are showing up to get dunked like everyone else because that's just the thing one does, not because they actually intend to change anything about themselves or their lives. John zeroes in on these ones, and he shouts at them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as an ancestor, for I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. In other words, don't rest on the laurels of your spiritual upbringing and heritage. God could just as easily raise up Jews from these river stones. Listen carefully, church. 
Because if John was among us today, he would give all of us the exact same warning. The Christian equivalent of we have Abraham as our father is we have Christ as our savior. Do not presume to say to yourselves, well, I go to church every week. I volunteer. I give to charity. For John would tell us God is able from these stones to raise up Christians and churchgoers. While trust in Christ's salvation is a first requirement, it is not the last. We are sorely mistaken if we conclude that one's piety and religiosity function like universal insurance policies. John's message to these spiritual leaders is harsh, urgent, and concrete. You brood of vipers, the axe is at the base of the tree, so repent. Change your hearts and lives. This is what it looks like to choose to follow God. The decisions that you make, the changes you make, bear tangible, verifiable fruit in your lives. So I think about this a lot about what repentance looks like. My opinion has changed over the years. I hope it continues to grow and change and become more nuanced and defined. I like to think about what real change really looks like, what a life that bears fruit really looks like. I think about it personally, of course, but I also think about it as a shepherd of a congregation. It has led me to say, rather bombastic things like, which is very out of character for me, very bombastic things like, I'd rather have a congregation of 20 people who have truly committed themselves to becoming more Christ-like by serving the poor, caring for others, renouncing the false idols of the world, than a congregation of 2,000 people who just like the music or the stained glass windows or the feeling of superiority that comes with attending a big church. Yeah, the finance team love it when I do that. <laughs> it's their favorite thing. I'm not so interested in bums and pews. I'm far more invested in lives that are being transformed. I like John the Baptist. Because if John were among us today, I think his message would sound hauntingly familiar. The language might be updated, but the core would remain unchanged. Do not rest on your laurels. Do not assume that the place where you worship, the family you come from, the coordinates of your birthplace, the party you vote for, the postal code where you live, the car that you drive, or the logos you wear, the number in your bank account, or the color of your skin is enough, because it's not. And it never will be. All of that, all of it, can be burned away. What matters, all that matters, is a change of heart and a life that bears fruit for the kingdom of God, everything else will burn. Is it getting hot in here? That's what happens when I take two Sundays off. I think we have made, I think we have made a grave error in our comprehension of passages like this one. We've oversimplified is what we've done. 
We've interpreted the wheat and the chaff in John's indictment as being two different groups of people. Either you are wheat or you are chaff. Either you are a sheep or you are a goat. You're in or you're out. And we spend our lives panicking, trying to be wheat, so that we don't get burned with all the other chaff in the aforementioned unquenchable fire. My apologies to celiac folk, like we'll find something else that works. But that's where we're wrong. It's not that some of us are wheat and some are chaff. It's that both wheat and chaff exist in each and every one of us. A stalk of wheat has both the seed and the husk that surrounds it. The husk is a chaff that is unnecessary in the harvesting process, and so it's burned away. It's unnecessary. But both are part of the same unit. You and I, we are both wheat and chaff. And that which does not bear fruit for the kingdom within us, within our lives, that is the stuff that will be burned away, purified away. The things we affiliate with ourselves, the labels to which we attach ourselves, they're meaningless. It's the old joke about never seeing a hearse hauling a storage truck. You can't take it with you. All that matters is how you live. When we are aligned with God and God's love, wheat and fruit are born out of our lives. Love and joy, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But there's still chaff. We still have to work on the chaff every day. And we can actually, if we choose, we can take comfort in the fact that the chaff will be burned away. So church, it's not an us and them situation. And yes, John makes it all sound very scary and judgmental. The winnowing fork is in his hand and so on. But at the heart of it, the process that John is pointing to is a separation from wheat, from chaff, from the same unit. Within all of us is required the work of separating that which is life-giving from that which does not bear fruit in the kingdom. Are you with me, church? The religious leaders on the outskirts of the crowd assumed, you know what that means, they already had it all tied up. They already were in the good books, either by birthright or status. They thought they were all wheat, baby. Baptism would be a public show at best, but not really necessary for them. Meanwhile, the regular people gathered at the Jordan listened to John's message, and they understood that this work of transformation was a daily task every day to repent, to change, to turn, and be baptized, to be made new. John's indictment was and is against those of us who run the risk of developing hemorrhoids from sitting so high up on our moral and religious high horse. John is harsh, and he is direct. It's no surprise he later had his head removed from his neck. But then the tension in our story breaks when a certain man from Nazareth walks up to John requesting baptism. 
John is shook from his outrage towards the Pharisees and Sadducees as his eyes come to rest on his cousin, Jesus. And the mood takes a very sudden turn in the story. Read it again, Matthew chapter 3. Tender, intimate, John lowering his shouty voice so only Jesus can hear. Hey, hey, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me for baptism? Yeah, Jesus replies gently. Yeah, John, let's, we got to do this. This is the right thing. So John does. And as Jesus is coming up from the water, the heavens are said to have opened. The spirit, like a dove, rests on him, and God's voice is heard. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, um, Warren's not the only one wondering about this. There have been countless debates over the past two millennia about why Jesus would even need to be baptized if he was sinless. We are not solving that debate today, I'm sorry. Stay tuned. I'm sure I'll cover it next year. Here's what we can say. Baptism is about more than just washing away chaff or washing away sin. It's fundamentally about chosenness. That is the work of transformation and repentance and daily looking inward, all of that. It's going to be hard, it's going to be painful, but baptism reminds us that with every step, even before the process has begun, we have been chosen. I love you, says God, and I claim you as my own. This is called prevenient grace. Grace and love that exists first. It's not transactional. The love of God isn't conditional on your repentance, believe it or not. It's not if so-and-so, then God will love you. Mm -mm. It's prevenient. Which makes sense when you consider that Jesus was baptized not because he needed anything washed away before God could love him, but as a reminder first that God loves and claims him just as Joseph did. Just as Joseph loved and claimed and adopted him when he was still in his mother's womb. You remember that? From the third week of Advent. The work to which Jesus was called as Messiah would be difficult and it would be painful. But even before any of that started, God reassured the son, this is my beloved. With him I take delight. We talk a lot in the church about the love of God, but what about the delight of God? It's like when a parent says to you, I love you, but I also really like you. That hits different, doesn't it? How many of us crave that affirmation? While the moment that Jesus comes up from the water is a holy and glorious revelation of the Trinity, it also fulfills this incredibly intimate human need just to be claimed and loved. It's one thing to tell the children in your life, I love you. It's another to say to them, you make me happy. I take joy in you. I love you and I like you. What if baptism for Jesus and for all of us is a moment of hearing maybe for the first time in our lives, I choose you, I love you, 
I take pure delight in you. This life is going to be difficult, but I invite you to turn to me, says God, to choose me, to claim me and the love that I offer you, day after day, moment after moment. I started the message by saying that the story starts and ends in the wilderness. It, it does, because right after his baptism, right after that beautiful moment of naming and claiming, the Spirit sends Jesus out further into the wilderness where he will be tempted by the accuser who would have him forget who and whose he is. Stay tuned for next Sunday. Sometimes I wonder, unorthodox as it is, if Jesus hadn't had this moment at his baptism, might he have struggled or even failed the temptations? I wonder how many times while he was out there in the wilderness for 40 days, how many times he returned to the memory of it. I'm loved, I'm claimed, and I'm chosen. I wonder if we would benefit from remembering that more often when we find ourselves in the wilderness of life, in a wild, untrodden place, in a dark, nebulous place inside our own minds. I wonder if when we are doing the hard work of separating chaff from wheat in our lives, ridding ourselves of old ways of thinking and being, outdated priorities, uninformed opinions, soul-crushing societal pressures, I wonder if in those moments, it might be everything we need to remember that the creator of the universe loves us, has chosen us, and takes delight in us. Before we even have done the work, it's not transactional, it's relational. God loves you, beloved, and me. The wilderness is inevitable. The axe is at the root, the winnowing fork is at hand. In the end, the chaff will be burned away from the precious seed of wheat within each one of us. And it will all be painful and difficult and uncomfortable, but preceding all of that is the love and delight of God. And one more thing, community. We're never alone, not even in the wilderness. To God be all the glory. Amen.